When the angel appeared to the shepherds who were keeping watch over their sheep by night, his message was simple. Don't be afraid, for I bring you good news of great joy that is for all the people. The gospel is good news. And the essence of the gospel is that God's Son is the Savior of the sins of those who inhabit the world. I'm going to ask you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 John. Keep your place if you have your Bible open to Romans 3. Keep your place there because we will be looking at that passage of Scripture as a companion piece to what we're going to look at in 1 John. We're going to talk about the impact of sin and what sin has done to us and also how God has provided a way for dealing with sin. We're going to look at three main ideas. The first of which is that God exposes our sin in the law of God. The second is that God... Love erases our sin. And the third is that God's life is exchanged for our sin. This is revolutionary. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're going to read in 1 John chapter 4, beginning with the last part of verse 8 and reading through verse 18. And we'll look at this in some detail together today. 1 John 4 Eight, the last sentence is, God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Let's begin with this first proposition that I'm suggesting. It's not my suggestion. It's what the Scripture teaches. And that is that God's law exposes our sin. Now, if you will look at chapter 3 of Romans for a moment. We're going to look particularly at verses 19 and 20 together. But before we do this, let's think about the law. What is the law of God? Well, the law of God is something which has been written on the hearts of all human beings. If people are not 
exposed to the words that make up the law of God, God has put eternity in the hearts of every human being. And we see this in Romans chapter 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. There are people in the world today, believe it or not, who have never heard the law of God. But internally they know because they have the imprint of eternity in their souls because they are created in the image of God. So the law is something that is instinctively seen in the lives of all human beings. That's the general idea. Let's move to the more specific. As David read from the third chapter, there's this long list of statements about people before they come into a relationship with God. It's not a flattering picture, which is painted by the psalmists, and also Isaiah the prophet is quoted, but it is, in effect, the law. The Scripture tells us, of course, that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. There is none who does good, not even one. That is the character of every human being. We take no interest in God until God takes the initiative to show us Himself, beginning with exposing our sin by His law. Then we read a little further in that passage of Scripture. And the scripture talks about the mouths of those who do not know God and how it's like poisonous venom coming from a snake. He talks about how men have feet that are quick to run after blood and to shed the blood of one another. And he talks about, in a general way, how destruction and misery are in their past. The 20th century was such a century. It's hard to believe that we are 20% into the 21st century. Isn't that hard to believe? Two world wars. There's a movie which will be released in El Paso next month, already released in certain venues in the United States and around the world, 1917, which is the depiction of World War I. Many of you know people who served in World War II. There are even people in this room, probably, who served in World War II. And we've had other wars. The Korean conflict, as it was called. It was not uh, an actual war from the legal sense, but it was a war in the Vietnam War. And all the wars in the Middle East, the Desert Storm event, and all the other kinds of Battles which have been and continue to be fought. This is a picture of what happens with men. Do you know the Bible tells us why there are wars? In the book of James, the Bible says it's because of our selfishness that there are wars. Destruction and misery are in the paths of men who do not know God. This is the state of the world. It's not a pretty picture 
which is painted. But the Word of God, the law of God, found in the Psalms and also in Isaiah, expose where we are apart from God. So in a sense, all of the Old Testament would constitute the law of God. Then in the very specifics, the Ten Commandments. Do you know the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. Actually, if we understand that commandment and order our lives based on that commandment, then it covers all the other commandments. We put God first. No other God besides me or before me. God is God and He is the final authority in our lives. That's the first commandment. The second commandment is that we shall not make for ourselves any graven image. We'll have no idols. We won't substitute man-made things for the one true God. The third one, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We know what that means. We think at least. We think about how we take God's name or the name of Jesus and use it as a swear word. That's an oversimplification. It is an example. But think about what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Plain. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, that's the name of God, and do not do what I say? Do you know when we disobey God? We are taking His name in vain. If we talk about the Lord this, the Lord this, the other, praise the Lord for this, praise God for that. So there is a law, one of the planks in God's platform for His law, the Ten Commandments, that we can see how we break from time to time. Then we're to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, the idea of worshiping God, setting aside a day like you have done today to come together as the body of Christ and to worship the Lord, honoring your father and your mother. Certainly that too is one of the commandments that we are called to, to honor the Lord in this way. Then as God goes into the second part of the Ten Commandments having to do with our relationships with one another. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet things which belong to others or relationships which belong to other people. The law exposes our sin. Now, let's see what the outcome is. Look at verses 19 and 20. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in sight, his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. There are three things which surface in this brief two verses about what happens when we know the law. Here's the first thing. What is the law's purpose? The law's purpose is to make us aware of sin. Were it not for the law, Paul writes later in the Romans letter, he would not have known that he was a sinner. He specifically pinpointed the last commandment of the ten. 
you shall not covet. He said, if I did not know the Bible teaches this, then I would not have known that I was a sinner. When we look at the list of the Ten Commandments and we study it carefully and understand it's not simply about the letter of the law. It's more than that. It's about the spirit of the law, too. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, remember Paul was one of their number. He understood what he meant, what was meant by what Jesus said to the Pharisees and the idea of being a person who simply sought to live by the letter of the law. Well, the letter of the law is important, but the Spirit is necessary to understand it fully. Because when it comes to murdering, we know what the Scripture says, that if I'm angry against you, I have, in effect, committed murder. Wow, that's pretty strong. Or if I have lust in my heart for a woman, I have committed adultery with her in my heart. That's the spirit of the law, isn't it? And we find ourselves being convicted of our sin when we begin to understand these things. We know what the Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians about people who don't know the Lord. The Bible says, A natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So people who do not know Jesus Christ do not have a way of understanding because the Spirit of God has not revealed this to them, that they are sinners. It's a great gift from the Lord when He exposes our sin. He makes us aware that we are sinners. The the law gives us the knowledge, the understanding of sin. But also, the law not only makes us aware of our sin, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, but also it makes us accountable for our sin. In verse 19, the last line says, All the world may become accountable to God when they know, those inhabitants of the world, know the law of God. So we're accountable before God. I'll talk about that a bit more in detail later today. But let's look at the third thing. Our awareness that we are sinners makes us ashamed, actually. Adam and Eve, after having sinned, made clothes for themselves. And they did it because they were ashamed that they had been exposed in their sin. They covered their bodies up because their sin had been exposed by their awareness that they had broken the law of God. But... What does this passage say that would lead me to say that when we are exposed to the law, that we are ashamed of it? Well, look again at verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed. What's interesting to you, perhaps, and it's a bit off-putting to me, for sure, But I have to remember what I mentioned earlier, that people who do not know Christ, natural people, do not understand the things of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the one who's given us the law through Moses and through other biblical writers. But what we need to understand is what the Scripture says, that we 
are become ashamed. And what I hear a lot of times, and you do too, I get tired of it, probably the way you do, how people who don't know the Lord are constantly harping and criticizing those of us who do. And especially not us. We're not really the issue. They have every kind of thing to say about the idea that Jesus is God. They would be careful to say Jesus is a good man. Jesus may be a prophet. Jesus is a teacher. Jesus is an example to follow. But when it comes down to really admitting that he is God and that he is the way of salvation, it's hard. But when people, some who are so critical, when people come to see the truth of the law of God, that blinders are taken off, then they are in a position to have their mouths closed. They stop chirping about the things that they thought were true about Jesus and God and just find themselves without words to say. So, the law of God exposes our sin. Are you grateful for the law of God? I am. Because without our knowledge of the law of God, we would not have known that we were sinners. We would not have needed a Savior. We did need a Savior before we knew we did, but you know what I'm saying about that. So let's move on and take a look at the second truth, that God's love erases our sin. Let's go over to 1 John again, if you will, chapter 4. And I'm going to work my way through a lot of this passage, which we looked at, beginning at verse 8. The last sentence says, God is love. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment. Notice it doesn't simply say God is loving, which He is, of course. But God is love. One of the names of God is love. His nature is love. That's what Scripture is telling us. And look at verse 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be propitiation for our sins. Let's think about this together for a moment. God sent His Son into the world to us. God took the initiative when it came to our salvation. Remember what Paul writes, quoting the Old Testament? There is none who seeks God. What did Jesus say when he was describing his mission? In the Gospel of Luke, he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus, when he came into the world, came to save sinners. And this was his primary mission. To restore men to a right relationship. Women to a right relationship with God. So, he sent his Son... Verse 10 says, to be the propitiation for our sins. He was His only begotten Son. His one-of-a-kind God Son is what only begotten means. He sent His Son. And the fact that He sent Jesus 
suggests that Jesus came from somewhere else. Where did Jesus come from? He came from heaven, didn't he? People who say that doctrine's unimportant miss the point of the Scripture. And they miss the point of this statement that God sent His Son because Jesus pre-existed. Jesus has been God in eternity and will be God forever. So God sent His Son. And He sent His Son to erase our sin. He came to be the propitiation for our sins. Now this is a big word. I never use it, quite frankly, unless I'm teaching from the Bible. It's not a word that is common in our everyday language, is it? So what does it mean? It's important we understand what this means for more than one reason. But the word propitiation is a word which carries with it the idea of satisfying the wrath of God. That's what it means. God had to do something with sin in order to maintain His own holiness and justice. He had to respond to sin in His wrath for sin. Because sin is against God. The Bible is clear that friendship with the world is enmity toward God. And sin, when we are in a state of sin, before we come to know that we're sinners, as God exposes that to us through His Word, by His Spirit, by the law of God, when we become aware of that, we realize that we are sinners. And Christ Jesus came into the world. We've seen this in First. Timothy chapter 1, he came into the world to save sinners. And the question would be, save sinners from what? And, of course, we would be right that he came into the world to save us from our sin. That's what we typically say. But somehow or another, the more basic idea has been lost over the decades, if not the centuries. He came us came to save us from the wrath of God. That's why he really came, believe it or not. And earlier in the book of Romans, the first chapter, the Bible says the wrath of God is now being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God is already being experienced in this world against sin. But it's going to be experienced in its full force when we stand before God at the end of our lives. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that comes judgment. And so God's wrath had to be satisfied. This is what the word propitiation is about. God's satisfaction of the wrath that he had to express to keep his own character intact. He could not contradict himself. Now, we will miss this if we don't think about it. Have you stopped to think that God the Father provided the sacrifice to appease His own wrath? And what was the sacrifice? It was not a thing, not an animal sacrifice, which had been the established way for centuries in anticipation for the final sacrifice to come. He sent 
His only begotten Son to be the satisfaction for our sin. This is the perfect love that John talks about in the passage of Scripture that we're considering today. And Jesus was sent to be that satisfaction for our sins. This is the propitiatory work of Jesus Christ. This word translated propitiation was used by those who translated the Jewish Scriptures, which were in Hebrew, into Greek. And when they came to the idea of the lid that was on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, where the high priest would go on the Day of Atonement, and he would take the blood of a sacrificial goat, he would take that in there, and he would pour it on the lid of that Ark of the Covenant. What was that called? The mercy seat. And overlooking that, there were angels or cherubim on either end of that piece of furniture that was designed and dedicated to the Day of Atonement. And they would be looking down as representatives of God. They would look down upon the mercy seat. When the translators translated that passage from the book of Leviticus and other references to the mercy seat in their Bible, what we call the Old Testament, they chose the word propitiation, the place of propitiation. Jesus is our mercy seat. It was He who shed His own blood. That would be gave His life. Because the Bible says it's very obvious that the life is in the blood. People who are perfectly well, could have a severed artery somewhere in their bodies and with a matter of minutes or even seconds be without life. Because the life is in the blood. And this has to do with the blood of Christ. It's a different kind of life. It's not simply physical. Jesus did die physically. Be sure of that. But He died in effect spiritually as well. He had to for us. Isn't it amazing? This love of God for us, it is incredibly amazing. If you would, hold your place here and then go back to Romans for another look at a verse in Romans. It's in chapter 2. Let's read verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. For all... Who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. What does it mean to be justified? It means to be made right with the law and the law keeper. The law administrator, if you will. And so... To be justified means, in the spiritual sense, in Paul's writings, to be made right with God. We need to be reconciled to God. We need to be justified, made right in the sight of God, in order for us to be reconciled to God. That's where the propitiation comes in. Christ became the propitiation for our sins. He was the place where sin was paid for, in full. When He was about to expire on the cross. 
he made this statement. One word in his language translated by three words in ours. It is finished. And by saying that, he was saying that he knew that he had completed his work. He had finished the work which God had given him to do. It was his responsibility to become the place of atonement, to be the mercy seat, if you will, to be the propitiation for our sins, to take the full weight of the punishment of God upon himself for us. This is a marvelous gospel. It is good news for us. It costs God the Father more than we can ever imagine. It costs Jesus, of course, more than we can ever really appreciate. But we who know Him are recipients of His love, which has resulted in our knowing Him. But I want to talk about this one step further. How the Bible will t- tells us that therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. If you know Jesus, there is no condemnation. And I want to pick that apart just a little bit. There is therefore now no condemnation. The suggestion is obvious. There was condemnation for us. Before we received Christ, we were under condemnation. The word condemnation was a word which was a word of the Roman law courts, the legal system. And it was a word which was used for people who were guilty of a capital offense punishable by death. We were under such condemnation before we received Christ. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. In fact, Paul writes in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 that before we received Christ, we were dead in our trespasses in sin in which we used to live in this world. We were dead spiritually. This harkens back to what I mentioned earlier, how people who don't know Christ, they don't understand the law of God. They don't understand the gospel. They are people who have no spiritual inclination whatsoever, because the law has not exposed to them their need for a Savior and forgiveness, has not exposed a holy God who is bound to respond to sin by punishing sin. So, this verse of Scripture that we looked at in Romans chapter 2, verse 13 says, not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. You and I can hear the law. That's what the Jewish teachers were guilty of, hearing the law, but not doing the law. And they did it externally. They were very careful to uphold all their extra Laws that they added to the law of God. They were careful to wash their dishes in a certain way and to go through the various rituals. But the problem was that it was only external. It was not internal. They had not received Christ into their lives. So, the Bible is very clear. God's love 
erases our sins. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Before I leave that sentence, this great statement, let me mention one more thing about it. When it says, there's therefore now no, that simple word no, the negative, actually literally interpreted, this is what the sentence says, there's therefore now not no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's unacceptable in English, isn't it? It's a double negative. But in the language of the New Testament, it was perfectly acceptable to state something that is negative in the strongest possible way. So what God's Spirit is saying through the Apostle Paul's pen is there is no way possible for those who are in Christ to be condemned. As Paul follows this thought to the end of the 8th chapter, you know how it concludes, don't you? 8th chapter of Romans, what does it say? Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other thing shall separate us from the love of God, which is where? In Christ Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, who is a propitiation for our sins, who takes away the sins of the world. He dumps them in the depths of the sea, according to Micah. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our sins from us, so that there is no possibility, if we are in Christ, to be condemned. Why? Because He was condemned for us. This is the Gospel. The law of God exposes our sin. The love of God erases our sin. Let's go and read again from the 17th and 18th verses of 1 John 4. By this love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Do you have confidence when you think about the day that you will stand before a holy God when you die? Confidence that you will not be consigned into an eternity where there will be what is described as eternal destruction? Do you find Fear in that thought? Well, if you're in Christ, what does the Scripture say? No condemnation. What does this passage say? Perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because fear involves punishment. Who's been punished for your sin? Jesus Christ has. And we don't want to become overly confident, but God wants us to have His confidence about this. That if we know Him... We are people who have been set free from the law of sin and death. In fact, Romans 8.2 says that the life of the Spirit in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. In Christ, 
There is freedom. And it has no bounds in terms of our freedom not to be afraid of being judged. This is the good news of the gospel for us who are in Christ. Let me look one more time at verse 18 and make sure I'm not leaving any important thoughts hanging. Verse 18 of 1 John 4 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. The question is, are you perfected in love? You are if you have no fear of standing before a holy God. Because you know what the scripture says about what Jesus has done for you. He voluntarily submitted to the Father's will to become the propitiation for your sin. To become the flashpoint for the wrath of God. For your sin. And the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Little children, I write these things to you. That you may not sin, but if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is that for us. And He has made it possible for us to be free. When we stand before the Lord, what kind of clothing will we wear, do you suppose? Well, the same kind of clothing that we've been clothed with already if we know the Lord. What is our clothing? We've been clothed in the righteousness of God in Christ. That is the attire which we have as followers of Christ. Let's look at the last thing. It's important. It'll correct some misconceptions that might be in our minds. And that is the third thing. And that is God's life is exchanged... For our sin. What does that mean? Well, who is Christ? He is the God-man. The Word become flesh. By His own description, He is the life. He is the resurrection and the life. And remember what the Scripture says. We who know Christ are no longer bound by the law of sin and death... But the law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus has set us free. Free to be obedient to God and obedient to His law. This is not licentiousness, a big word that's used by people who are scholars of the Scripture. Licentiousness means because we are not under condemnation. You can just live any old way you want to without respect to the law of God. To the contrary, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, if you will look at 1 John 3, verse 9, you're in the vicinity. The Bible says, no one who is born of God, that would be you and I, if we know Christ. No one who is born of God practices sin, makes a practice, has a lifestyle of sin, habitually sinning. Do we sin? Yes. John's already talked about what happens if we confess our sins, becoming aware that we have once again lapsed into a state of disobedience. What are we to do? Confess our sins, and God will purify us from all or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We still sin. However, sin is not our M.O. anymore. 
We're no longer living in sin. We're living in Christ. Look at verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. Why? Because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. The presence of God's Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus in us, is the means whereby we overcome sin and have a lifestyle that progressively becomes like Christ. Now let's look at things in the passage in 1 John 5 that would indicate what I've just said about how God's life is exchanged for our sin. Let's look again at verse 9 of 1 John 4. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we, we might live, how? Through Him. Through His Spirit. Look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us, what? Of His Spirit. Now, let's look at Verse 17 once more. By this love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Why? Because as He is, that would be Jesus, so also are we in the world. Is this just some kind of idealistic statement in Scripture without any teeth to it in terms of being something which can be expressed through us as followers of Christ? Absolutely not. It's as practical as any practical thing may be. Because Christ in us is the one who gives us the power to be men and women who walk in dependence upon the Lord. The Word of God says in the book of Colossians, almost in passing, Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, Christ is our life. Jesus is our life. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. And then what happened? When we were found by the Lord, we were born again by the living and abiding Word of God. The Bible says we are born not of blood, nor the will of man, nor the will of the flesh, but we're born of God. We were dead and we were brought to life. And when the life of Christ came to dwell in us by the Spirit of God... We have now the power to live life as we were created to live it to begin with. This is a mystical thought, I know, but it's practical at the same time. How do we live the life known as a Christian life? As we enter into a new year, you may have turned over leaf after leaf after leaf after leaf, and you finally said, I'm throwing my hands up. I'm never going to turn over a new leaf. I have aspirations as I enter into a new year that this year will be the year that I really follow Christ. Well, that's a good aspiration, even if to your own understanding you have not attained your desire to do that. But here's the secret to living the Christian life. Christ in you, the life, the hope, of glory. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet Christ lives where? In me. That's Paul speaking. He said, well, that's Paul. He was the great apostle. Look, we are no different 
from Paul, if we have Christ, the same Spirit who indwelled Him indwells us. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. That's the KJV translation. This is one time for sure that they get it extremely correct. It's His faith in us. He is in us. And we, in effect, we depend upon His own belief because He's in us. We have to cooperate for sure. But when we do, we see that our sin, which ruled our lives before we came to Christ, now has been replaced by the perfect person, the only perfect human who ever lived. And He has taken up His residence in us. Are you ready to give up trying? Well, start trusting the Lord. And that doesn't mean that you don't want to know what God wants you to do. The difference is when you really yield yourself to the understanding of the Spirit being in your life and you ask Him to control your life, fill your life is the way the New Testament describes it, to fill you. The Spirit of the Lord is in you if you know Christ. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what God has done in Christ. And we now have the capacity no longer to be ruled by the law of God and scared by it. No longer have to worry about being condemned at the judgment seat of Christ. But we are to be people who are people who can know that this world can be a victorious world. We can walk in victory in Christ by the power of God. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are grateful for the truth of your word. We know the truth sets us free. I do pray, Lord, that what I've said will not be just so many words to me, Lord. Thank you for giving me this assignment. And I know, Lord, that it was for me probably more than anyone here in understanding you and your love for us your life in us. So I pray for everyone present that everyone here would know in his or her life today and going into 2020 what it means to have Jesus living not just in him or her, but through him or her. We ask this in your name, Jesus, believing you hear it, Father, because we do. Amen.